Hello and welcome to another episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of natural building, permaculture, and regenerative living. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic interview for you this week, so let's jump right on in. My guest today is Neil Spackman. Neil is best known for his work on the Albeda Project in Saudi Arabia and is also the co-founder of the Sustainable Design Masterclass. Neil has been working for nearly a decade in one of the most arid regions of the world in a severely desertified region of Saudi Arabia to regenerate the landscape there through permaculture methods focusing on water harvesting techniques. As a former student of Jeff Lawton, Neil began work on the project with no prior experience with either permaculture or dryland restoration, but in a remarkably short time, he and his team have completely transformed the way the land both sequesters water and builds topsoil, and has even reached the point where the trees no longer need any water from drip irrigation in a desert that receives only a few centimeters of rainfall a year. In this interview, Neil talks in detail about the intricacies and challenges that they face in his land restoration project, the social and economic factors that add a human element to the designs, and how he went from a complete beginner to running one of the most prominent and successful desert restoration projects in the world. We also talk about the incredible information and interviews that he hosts through the Sustainable Design Masterclass and the inspirational stories of people who are running profitable businesses by regenerating the earth. Now before I give away the whole thing, let me turn things over to Neil. Hey, Neil, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. My pleasure. How's everything going in Utah? Things in Utah are fine. Glad to hear. We got good weather, good ultimate frisbee. Hey, there you go. Well, hey, I've got tons of stuff that I'd like to cover with you and a lot of questions, so how about we just jump right in? All right. All right, so let's start by getting a feel for your background. Tell me a little bit about how you grew up how your interest in the Middle East and regenerating the desert began. Oh, well, uh, I grew up in Minnesota, uh, in Rochester, Minnesota. It's, uh, it's a funny city. It's small. It's about 100,000 people. And the big employers there are the Mayo Clinic and IBM. And those that like covers half of the city. So it's a small city full of doctors and computer geeks. Um, went to school at Brigham Young University. Uh, studied Arabic in the Middle East. Um, it, it, it's kind of a general degree where you're doing history and you're doing religion, you're doing politics, you're doing economics. Um, and I tacked on a, a minor in economics because I felt like I hadn't done enough quantitative work. Um, and then my interest in sustainability and started, started with construction and housing, actually. I was really interested in um, the concept of efficient uses of space um, and in uh, the idea that a house could supply its own electricity, its own water. Um, I was into it from the construction side of things before the food and the land use side of things. Yeah, I can relate to that. But it uh, one led to the other, definitely. I think the first time I heard the word permaculture or read it was in Yonto Evans' book. Yonto is a, a guy who lives in southern Oregon who built a small uh homestead with a number of cob buildings he's kind of the the father of the cob movement in the united states and so, and he was also a semi the people who knew yanto also knew his work on beans and his permaculture gardening yeah and so um i also love food i'm one of those people that i i live to eat I love good food. I love eating. I like cooking. And so this, the concept of efficient uses of space, natural materials in a home, and how that home interacts with um, its surroundings kind of led to the how 
opening up the world of how our food systems are and how they operate and what they could be. Um, and, and I, I dabbled in permaculture while I was working an office job. Shortly after I graduated from BYU, I took a job in Virginia um, where I was working in a cubicle, you know, eight hours a day writing reports that nobody paid very much attention to. And uh, I was looking for a way out of there. And permaculture at that point, permaculture and sustainable housing and construction and all that stuff was a hobby. Um, I liked reading about it. I didn't have much chance to practice because we lived in a we lived in an apartment, and so I I rented a plot at a community garden and did some gardening. But I was I was not in this space at all. Um, but I had let a number of friends know that I was preparing to quit that job and. Uh, transition into something closer to this. And one of those people who was my neighbor said, well, I'm involved with this project where we have this idea that we want to um, we want to build a green village in Saudi Arabia um, working with people who have been uh, uh, not dispossessed, but people who are struggling with a transition away from nomadism into settled life. So quickly, I'm curious, even before you got to this point, what did you have in mind for yourself when you decided to study Arabic and Middle Eastern studies? Oh, I figured I would go to grad school and be a lawyer or a doctor. Um, yeah, that's what I figured. I, I took an Arabic class in 2002 and I really liked it. I found it very challenging. And uh, so I kept taking them. And eventually I was like, you know what? I like this enough that I think I could major in it. And then I was, you know, I never intended to work with it. I mean, everybody, everybody who studies foreign language and focuses on something like that has at least some kind of dream about, like, building cultural bridges and you know there are these kind of vague cliche aspirations that people go through but it tends to be a phase um but when i graduated i had this job offer and i wasn't 100 percent sure uh that that i did want to go be a doctor or a lawyer um Law, even even now, law schools are, are kind of like dropping out because mm. there's not that much demand. And I had I had followed a number of doctors around in the hospital and, and kind of decided that I didn't want to go to 12 more years of school. <laughs> Understandably. I, yeah, I was in a transition phase and I had this job offer. So I was like, well, yeah, I'll, I'll take this job mm. and and, you know, figure out where I go from here. Cool. Well, okay. So I'll let you pick back up uh, where you left off with finding the Albida project. Yeah. So I, I got offered. I got approached with an offer to be involved in Albida, where it was it was a concept at the time. It was an idea, and I said, and we, I wasn't initially approached with the offer. I was initially approached with a, what would you do in the with this kind of thing, what are the options that you could have? And so I sent them some videos of Bill Mollison and Jeff Lawton talking about dryland permaculture, as well as I, I lent out a bunch of books from my own uh, from my own shelf on, you know, round earth building, on Cal Earth's uh, earth bag construction. Mm -hmm. Uh, because because I didn't know what might be an option there, so so it was more like I was just throwing them doing, a bunch of concepts. Yeah, throwing a bunch of concepts out to this person who was my neighbor, and after a number of months, um, I told her that I was preparing to quit my job, and she said, "Oh well, we don't have anybody to to really get this thing started. Do you want to give it a try?" And I said, yeah, I'll give it a try. Uh, 
but I want you to pay for me to get my PDC. And, uh, and, and anyway, there are a number of details that need a discussion. But the, the long and short of it is that I quit my office job in Virginia and moved to Saudi Arabia. Uh, Quite a transition. At that point, you had a small family or a young family? Yeah, I had two kids then. Uh, my daughter was four or turning four, and my son was one. I, my first son, and our third was not born yet. Oh, how did you make that sell to your wife? You know what? My, my, wife, is, uh, my wife is a gem. When, when we talked about this, she said, uh, this is the kind of thing you've always dreamed about, and I don't want to stand in the way of that. So let's give it a try, and I'll do my best to handle things. That's fantastic. So now can you explain for us what the Albeda project is and what are its goals for the future? You bet. So it's it's evolved a lot because you start out with a conception and then you get to the ground and you find out what, you know, real life is, what the realities are. And so it's it's blossomed quite a bit where we we work with a few with people from a few tribes who are settled nomads they're, they're Bedouin culturally but they don't practice nomadism anymore between 30 and 15 years ago most of them took houses and stopped living in their goat hair tents and stopped chasing the rain with their animals and so there's, they're going through a massive transition, and at the same time, their land is undergoing severe desertification and losing its ability to sustain life. So what is contributing mostly to the desertification now that they've settled in, in their one places? It's, it's management of the land. Um, it's how the land is managed, but that land management is dictated by the, the policies that determine the, the parameters of what can and cannot be done. So it's, it's a combination of policies with unintended consequences and changes in practice to the, to the land management, and then a lack of local organization. Um, What's happened is that the people have found that they can no longer feed their animals on the land itself. And so they're, they're in a position where they have to buy feed to keep their animals alive. And the way they have funded that purchase is by cutting down trees. Which is exacerbating the problem then. Exactly. So mm. land is um, overgrazed in the sense that when grasses come up, those grasses don't ever have the chance to set seed because they're eaten before they can do it. And so the seed bank is decreasing. Um, but also, the, there's, if it rains, there's never anything in the ground. There's no biology to make that effective rainfall. It all and, just runs off. Yeah, it runs off. You get these big floods, and it will, it will run off into the sea, actually. It, it's not that it evaporates or that it's, it doesn't go into the ground. It, it actually reaches the Red Sea. Um, and so you have these very short rainfall events where, you know, 80 or 90% of the water is being lost to the sea. And then Saudi Arabia is desalinating, um, you know, most of the water it uses for its cities. So there was... There's ecological issues, there's economic and social issues, um, and then the, it's, it's these people who are undergoing a very, very difficult transition from be, having a traditional indigenous lifestyle to being settled and having electricity and having paved roads, but also finding that they can't support themselves on their land anymore. And so most of the people are living off of welfare, which the Saudi government provides. Um, and in the meantime, their land's carrying capacity, their land's ability to produce is decreasing 
And so we came in uh, with an emphasis on uh, housing. And that emphasis changed quite quickly towards building an economy with in, as well as focusing on housing, public health, education, infrastructure, um, and a number of other development-related fields. And I'm not overseeing all of those. My role has been to develop the prototype for how we can make the land productive again and how we can manage that productivity such that it becomes a sustainable endeavor. Um, so we use, we're very tight with how we budget our water use and we, um, we measure how much water we catch from the rain and how much of that we can get into the ground. And then we take less out of the ground in the form of our wells. But my, my goal at this point is to show that the system we've built over the last seven years is something that can be duplicated and that actually does have the potential to create new rural economies um, in the Saudi desert such that we are, you know, actually increasing water resources and, incre and increasing soil carbon and increasing biodiversity. Um, and at the same time, creating a new livelihood for the people who live there. Fantastic. Um, we have done that on a 100-acre demonstration site. And we're in the process of um, taking over a second 5,000-acre site um, that the government is allocating to, to us to manage, um, which is big enough for us to... to it should be big enough for us to show that this has um, real commercial viability, um, but also enough that we think we can raise the income of the people who work with us five or six fold. Without the social welfare. Yeah. Oh, well, it's, not the, it's not just that we can take them off welfare. It's that they can actually make a good living. And at the same time, reconvert their land from being desert to being closer to a savanna ecology. That's a remarkable transition. And how long has the project been going on up to this point? Um, there was the concept was developed in 2009. I was brought on summer of 2010 and that's when work on the ground really started is when I moved out there and we um, made some MOUs with the local magistrate and with the tribal leaders and uh, and also we got approval from the governorate from the, from the, the higher up regional uh, government so we had political cover to actually try to do something. And then we recruited a small team of local workers, um, all of whom were Saudi Bedouin tribesmen. We, I started out with four who worked with me, and that was in September of 2010. Uh, work on the ground started. Sure. So just to back up a little bit to get an idea of how you got started doing this, since you had no real experience in land restoration before that, I know you mentioned one of your stipulations of jumping in on the project was that they pay for your PDC. Yeah, and, and you know, much less had you had experience with actually regreening the desert projects. How did you go about acquiring the skills and knowledge that you needed to be effective on this? Well, I had, I, I, they sent me to Jordan and I did my PDC with Jeff Lawton. Um, and then we brought on Jeff as a consultant for two weeks. And I had him one-on-one -on -one for, I think, 12 days where he and I, um, he, he and I selected the demonstration site together. We did a design together. We laid out um, a number of things. But it was it was like a really, really fast apprenticeship. 
And between that and the PDC and uh, a few other very helpful resources, um, Brad Lancaster's books were very helpful. Um, a number of books on water and watershed management that I had studied. Between that and the apprenticeship with Jeff, it was enough to, to get us started, right? It wasn't enough to get us to the end, but it was enough to get us started. And I think, and I actually think that that, that side of it is actually easier than the people side of it. So we, I, yeah, I wasn't hired because of my knowledge of, of that. I was hired because I knew Arabic. I knew the culture. I understood how the people systems tended to work under a tribal organization. And, uh, and so we just said, look, that's, that's the, they couldn't find anybody with those qualifications. And so it was more like a, it's not that I was the best one for the job. It was more like I was the only one they found that was had the qualifications and was actually willing to go and live out there. Sure, sure. Unique criteria. Yeah, exactly. And so it was more that it was understood that I would figure things out to some degree as we went along and, and was able to observe the land and able to to test things out. And so to, to some degree, there, there have been a lot of trials and there's been a lot of uh, testing. But uh, it was it was a combination of I had some book knowledge of it already. And then I did those two weeks with Jeff and that was enough to get us going. Fantastic. Now, you know, the more we talk about it, the more I realize how much of an intricate and complex system and also ambition this project is i know you mentioned you know the cultural difficulties or let's call them challenges for yeah. setting up this multi-phase project you yeah. talked about the diminishing biology in the soil being one of the major uh hurdles to overcome what are some yeah. of the other biggest challenges on the site that you're working on specifically well let's start with ecological uh we average two between two and two and a half inches of rain a year. So about we average about 60, 70 millimeters of rain. Uh, that's an average. We we went 37 months with no precipitation between 2011 and 2014. Um, and then it gets very very hot. We get up to 50 degrees Celsius, which I think is the mid-120s in Fahrenheit. Typically, it doesn't get up to 50, but it, it, is, it does stay in the 45 to 49 range for almost the month of July and August. So it's very hot um, and very dry. And we have no soil. So the land is not arable land. Right, there's no soil, there's no water, and it's super hot. So, in terms of looking at this and saying, "Hey, let's do some agriculture here," um, that's that's a big challenge. Yeah, it's about as non-conducive to those activities as you can as you See, can like, find. No one looks at this land and says, "This is a great place to start a farm." Right. Um, so that's that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that, um, you know, culturally, the people I work with, they have so much invested emotionally and personally in the land and in their animals in particular. These people, um, the Bedou I work with, love their camels and their sheep and their goats. Um, and it's it's that interaction they have with the land that is determined by their grazing has been the lifeblood of their culture for thousands of years. And so now that, and now they're undergoing this massive shift and, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't um, speak about it this way, but there is so much anxiety, so much fear. And, and people realize that, Cutting down trees is not a solution in the long term, but they don't have the luxury of thinking long term because their short term needs are so acute. 
And so it's how do you how do you manage that transition where you have people with very strong short term needs who who need development that looks at the long term, but the there's a contradiction between the short term needs and what long term planning would actually lead to. Um, so how do you how do you stop those practices that meet the short term needs, but that harm the long term? How do you how do you manage that transition? That that's very very difficult to do, um, unless you've got some very short term solutions. Now in in a more tropical climate, if you were if you're looking at refugees in Venezuela or poor people in a tropical place. You can put something in the ground and be eating six weeks later. Um, that's not the case where we are because we don't, we can't utilize groundwater to that extent without draining the aquifers. Right. And in fact, that's that's what is happening in Saudi Arabia as a whole, as well as in many other countries, is that fossil aquifers are being depleted. Um to create agriculture. And so you have communities that have grown up with agriculture over the last 40, 50 years. And all of a sudden they're not going to have any water at all. And these communities are starting to collapse. Uh, that's, that's not specific to Saudi Arabia. Although I know the details in Saudi Arabia better than in other places. That's also happening in China. It's happening in, in India and Pakistan. It's happening in the United States under the Ogallala. Um, so in some ways, the, the patterns that I see in Saudi Arabia are similar to patterns being carried out in many other places where traditional peoples are seeing their traditional way of life fail and they're, they're forced to adapt. Most people facing that situation are moving into the cities and then they're dealing with urban poverty rather than rural poverty. Um, but we, we have a chance to reverse that in Saudi Arabia under some of the most difficult climatic conditions. And so it's, um, it's, it's a microcosm of lots of other patterns. Um, and it's a chance for us to, to see if we can reverse it. Yeah, I like how you pointed that out. While the problem may be, you know, have its unique aspects to what you're dealing with in Saudi Arabia, it does mirror sort of a larger trend around the world of some very similar patterns and transitions that, you know, traditional or indigenous people in different areas of the world are facing. And perhaps some of the solutions that you find in Saudi Arabia while they may be more specific to the environment that you're working with there, can definitely have ripples and have examples that can be adopted in other places. I like that. Yeah, I think so. So now, at this point, what have been some of the most, I don't want to say just largest, but maybe the most effective or most pivotal steps that you've taken in this project to address some of those challenges that you just talked about? Well, what we've done is... We have managed these flash floods. Our goal was to get the flood water into the ground um, as much as possible, as quickly as possible, to limit water loss from these watersheds. And then we have used that water as a basis for planting um, what could eventually become an ecology. But on our 100-acre site, about 60 of those acres our mountains, and so we we built a number of structures up in the mountains to kind of slow that water down, and we haven't done any planting up in the mountains. So about 60% of the land is dedicated to just collecting runoff. And then uh, on the other 40%, we've used about half as where we have decided to grow our crops. So on that on that twenty percent, so that's about twenty acres. We've we've planted four thousand trees, um, and we've experimented with a number of species. And we, the first planting we did was in January January of two thousand 
and 12. And so we've seen five years of growth off of those. And we've planted almost every year since. There were two years in the middle we didn't plant, but we planted last year and we planted in 2015. We planted in 2014. And so seeing this develop, um, we've also seen uh, a lot associated with this. We've seen a lot of species return to the site that local people told me they either hadn't seen there before. So we've seen, um, after our first rainfall in 2011, we saw one species of mushroom pop up in our earthworks we put in. Now we're seeing five species of mushrooms. And what is this indicative of? What does this tell you about how the project is progressing? Well, the the mushrooms are especially interesting because they indicate that there's a developing mycelial web. Uh, mycelium in uh, mycelium's crucial. It's crucial to uh, ecological health because it is the network that trees and plants use to trade nutrients. Um, and so I, we're, we're aiming for more fungal soil where we are because mycelium is the, or mushrooms, mycelium and mushrooms are, are connected, but mycelium is the, the biology that we can access that will convert minerals in the sand and in the mountains um, to be biologically available to plants. Um, but the other thing that mycelia does is it actually um, respirates water. Mycelium produces water as part of its respiration. And it all happens under the ground where it's not exposed to the same kinds of temperatures that, of things that are happening above ground. So the fact that we now have five species of mushroom, and, and it just shows that we have a further developing web of mycelia that's going to assist with developing all the other types of life that we're trying to get there. That's wonderful. Um, we've also seen our, our lizard population increase, our snake population increase, a lot more dung beetles a lot, actually a lot, a variety of insects that we hadn't seen before and weren't seeing before. Um, grasshoppers, dung beetles, um, a number of tree-eating insects. We finally have termites on site. Uh, the first time I saw termites was last summer. And termites can be the earthworm of the desert. Earthworms won't survive where we live because it's too hot and too dry. Um, so we have termites now, and they will take all the dead wood and convert it into soil um, under the ground. We've seen our number of ants increase. Our bird nests. We used to have two or three bird nests on the whole 100 acres that we had observed, and now it's uh, approaching 40 or 50. We've seen wild bees swarm on the trees that we planted. And so the, the ecology is developing. Certainly sounds like it. Right? That's fantastic. As, as a result of the work we're doing, um, in part because we're, we're kind of laying that biological infrastructure, you know, in the form of trees and mycelia, uh, mycelia will deal with the soil and trees, you know, shade everything and they cause windbreak and they'll lower temperatures and they create these microclimates. Um, and, and so that's kind of our biological infrastructure that gets everything else started. Um, so that's been really encouraging to see. I mean, I, the wild bees I saw um, last time I was in country, that was four weeks ago. And I was, I was just checking out our site, and I heard this buzzing. Um, and so I checked this tree out, and there are these wild bees swarming on an acacia. Not an acacia, on a... Uh, no, it was on an acacia. And, um, you know, when I used to wake up when I slept on site, I, used, I would only hear mosquitoes and flies. That's the only thing I heard. 
and now I hear birdsong and bees. You know, it's, it's That's a quite a validation. Yeah, and it's it's beautiful. I'm not gonna lie; it is incredibly um, fulfilling to have seen that change on this little site. And here's the other thing: is that we planted all these trees and we irrigated them. Some of them we irrigated for five years. Some of them we only irrigated for two. But last September, we cut the irrigation to our site entirely. Because I think we can create something that will live and reproduce on its own. I really do think we can flip the ecology of this place. Where it's not just a desert and we're managing it as a desert. But I do think that it can become a savanna. Um where this thing, where, where the birds will eat off of the trees and eventually will create other trees elsewhere and will start to get those ecological dynamics that are conducive to the creation of a forest. Well, it certainly sounds like it's already really taking hold. Those are some fantastic milestones. We cut the irrigation and I thought, you know, 30 to 70% of everything would die. Um, that was what I expected. And we haven't had, um, when we cut that irrigation, the last time it had rained was February of 2016. So the last rain was February of 2016. We cut the irrigation September 2016. Um, and those trees have had no water up to this point, even now. Um, so it's been, it's been eight or nine months at this point. And you haven't lost any of them then? No, a few have died. Um, but there are five species that are actually producing under these conditions. Um, some of them went dormant, and, and they we weren't sure if they were going to be dead or not. And we got in, uh, in April, we got one-third an inch of rainfall. We got eight millimeters of rain. So a little, little drizzle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's nothing, right? It's nothing compared to what other people are used to. No, what, I probably got like five or eight times that just last night. <laughs> exactly. So after that eight millimeter rainfall, I went and walked around again to see what had happened. And all there were literally hundreds of trees that I thought were on the verge of death that bloomed within four days. Um, and that's what, that's what brought the wild bees, actually, was this bloom. And so I, I've revised my expectation. I think maybe 10% will die. Um, and the rest is going to live. And, uh, but what that's done is it's, it's really pointed out to us, out of the, you know, 12 or 13 species that we planted, there are five that will do really well here. Um, and, and that's what this final test has been. I was really nervous to do this, and I haven't talked about it publicly, although I've noted it on Instagram. Like, there was a chance that it was all going to die and the whole thing was going to be a waste. I didn't think that was going to happen, but it was a possibility. Um, and so to see not just that things are living, but are producing, um, and they're only three, they're only two to five years old. Like none of these are fully mature trees yet. Right. Right. I'm, I'm now very confident that we can, we can change the stable state of the ecology in this air, in this region. It doesn't have to be a desert. Um, and we, because we've done it now, this thing is not, there are no inputs going on to our site. We are not fertilizing. We are not composting. We are not irrigating. We are not, we have not used any herbicides, fungicides, or pesticides ever. And it is, the biology on this site is increasing, despite the fact that there is no longer any more input. 
Um, and that's a big deal. And this is mostly due to those initial land works and excavations that you did in order to harvest the available water and to have it percolate into the soil as much as possible. Yeah, and I, that's where we are. We needed those physical structures in place to harvest that water because we couldn't do it biologically. Um, it's always the preference to do it biologically. But, but what we've seen is that, you know, we put in five to six years where there's a lot of people on site, a lot of management, a lot of shaping the earth to change how it interacted with the water flow. But now it's something that we should be able to leave it alone. And it's not that it's going to die. It's actually going to expand. It's going to get denser. And, and this was one of the things when I started back in 2010, you know, I had seen Jeff Lawton's Greening the Desert, and I had seen a lot of claims that permaculture had made. And there is this kind of fantasy dream that you can get something going and then leave it alone, and then all you do is harvest. And I do think that is still a little fantastical. There's more work to be done than just harvesting. But on our site, I do think we have shown that it is a reality that you can set something up and then the biology will take over and get denser and expansive. Well, I suppose that's what anybody would be aiming for in creating sort of resilient ecologies. At a certain point, you want it to take hold and be able to at least take care of its own needs, if not continue to regenerate and provide more and produce. That's exactly right. Yeah, those are the, the key differences between, you know, a lot of conventional and industrial agriculture and what permaculture promotes, what uh, Darren Doherty and his Regrarians platform promote and yep. so many other, you know, individual land management projects. That's all the end goal. And it's so great when you see, especially such a challenging site like the one you have to work with. Um, you know, sure, it takes a little bit more of an initial investment and probably a few more years of maintenance than it might say where I am in a very, very resilient ecosystem as it is. Yep. We, you know, we get tons of rain. It's very easy to build soil quickly. And, you know, that's not the case where you are. However, with a little bit more input and maintenance, you can reach that point where the ecology that you've created takes over and starts to provide its own needs. Yeah. Exactly right. Now, what would you recommend to other people who are inspired by stories like yours and who want to get involved in restoration projects of their own? Oh man, um, I think I think my case is pretty exceptional. Um, most people who want to do this don't just have an opportunity fall in their lap. Um, I would say for the vast majority of people, it's better to start where you are with what you've got um, and to start practicing in the way that you can. Um, we Actually, this, this is partly why I started uh, the webinar series I run is because there are a lot of people who kind of fall in love with the concept of permaculture and then flame out um, because they they end up thinking that it's it's not realistic or that it's only applicable on like a backyard scale or that it, uh, it the realities of the market and um, especially the agricultural market or the land market or, or the realities of the politics where they live don't really allow for, uh, you know, this kind of large scale development. And so I, I started this webinar series called Sustainable Design Masterclass, specifically with the purpose of highlighting people who are doing real work on the ground and who are willing to show the results of what they're doing. Um, because I do think that there are charlatans in this field who over-promise and under-deliver. 
Um, and that just leads to disappointment and a lot of and a lot of unfounded expectations. Um, and then people say, "Oh, well, this isn't this isn't real. This this actually isn't. It's it's just fluff and promises and and people selling courses um, and creating these pyramid schemes where." You know, I teach teachers, and those teachers teach other people, and those people become teachers. And, and and that's not the case. That's not the case. There are real people doing real work on the land and making phenomenal changes and making money doing it. Um, and by highlighting these people, I think it, it shows people, first of all, you do have to have your feet on the ground, Right. You can't just you can't just jump in 99% of the time. You've got to have relevant skills. Um, you have, and usually you have to find mentors, and you have to get your feet wet before you can. You have to walk before you can run. Yeah, I mean, even in your unique situation where you were handed a, a very large project, you were talking earlier about how you know you took your PDC and then you had Jeff Lawton come out and consult on your site and you know while it was a kind of condensed period of time, that was uh you know the the real information and educational experience that you needed to be as effective as you have been. Yeah. So now I'm I'm really glad you brought up the webinar series because I wanted to ask you more about that. Um, how long have you been going with that series at this point? We started, I think, I think I first, I did my first webinar towards the end of 2015. It was November or December. Um, and it was just kind of to test the water. Um, I had approached uh, a man named Raleigh Latham, who's a videographer, and who I had met um, through, some, through some networks. I, I had never met him in person, but we had we had spoken on the phone, and I didn't know anything about the tech side of things. I'm, I didn't know anything about creating websites or creating you know like information funnels and developing email lists and all that stuff. So I approached him to be my partner on it, and we started the end of 2015, and I think we we did maybe 15 webinars all of 2016. We didn't do that many. I think we averaged one a month. Um, and it was, it was fun. We weren't making very much money with it. It was more, it was very much a side gig where my, my goal with it was not, not at, at first I, I pictured it as duplicating that mentorship I had had with Jeff where people could interact with experts, you know, see the work they had done, see their methodologies, and then ask them questions um, so that they could progress on their own work at home, right? It was, that was my goal with this, was to kind of duplicate that availability of mentorship without actually having to fly somebody to your place or, or to have to go to where they are and then work with them. And so this year we have done a webinar almost every week. I think we have missed two weeks so far this year. Um, and we've had some on some really amazing people doing fantastic work. All yeah, of I can it certainly attest to that. I'm a big fan of the, the webinars you've put out so far. Yeah, and, and a lot of these people are known, right? But they're hard to access for for the average person, or they're not known, but they're doing really, really good work. Um, and both of those, I, I, I'm, I'm really happy to be able to provide that link for people. Um, and it's and it's given me a, a little bit more of a window to to what's going on in other places. I mean, I've gotten. I, I get emails from people who have an 8,000-acre ranch in, in South Africa, and they're like, hey, how should I do this? And other people, I think I got a contact from Brazil. I think she had 20,000 acres where she wanted to restore the rainforest and at the same time 
be able to, to have products to sell out of it. So she had bought previously deforested rainforest that was being used to, as soy and cattle land, and she wanted to reconvert it back. So I hear from some people doing really cool things, um, and at the same time I get to highlight the work of, of, of people who are doing real work. And I and I I really do want to cut through the this perception that you know it's all the only the only work in permaculture is for teachers. The only people who can make a living in permaculture are people who teach permaculture. Um, that's not true, and I highlight the people who prove it's not true. That's fantastic. That has uh, a lot in common with my motivations for starting this podcast as well. And, you know, while these sessions are quite a bit more condensed and a little bit shorter and, um, you know, don't have the visual aids and such, it's it's very similarly meant to be an access portal for people who highlight some of the best examples of what you can do with either certain skill sets or in certain environments or with yeah. certain focuses, all relating to you know some sort of regenerative living, uh, or land base, or building projects. And uh, yeah, it's, I can say for myself that yeah, the the webinars that you've put out have uh, not only informed me incredibly, but I've actually put me in touch with some of the people who I've interviewed and gotten a ton of value from as well. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> so hey, um, before I let you go here. How can my listeners find out more about the Albeda Project, the Sustainable Design Masterclass, and how to reach out to you in general? The uh, Albeda, we, we are very media light. Unless you speak Arabic, there are a number of newspapers and news conferences that we have done in Arabic. Uh, if you search local Saudi media or if you look at El Arabiya, um, we've got some stuff on there. But for English speakers, the best place to follow us is on our Instagram page, um, which is Instagram.com slash A-L underscore B-A-Y-D-H-A. Um, I, I post updates there regularly on our Instagram page. Um, Are you still posting regular on the YouTube as well? I intend to do a video this fall. We have, I have not done a video, I think, since 2015. Um, but yeah, we're due for another one. My, the, the people who employ me, the people who fund this project, um, did not want to do a lot of stuff on YouTube. That was not their preferable channel. Fair enough. Um, so I haven't done much on there, but I think we're going to do one this winter when we hit our seven-year anniversary. Uh, but mostly it's on, it's on Instagram. Um, I also I, I founded a Facebook page called Dryland. Uh, hold on. Is it? Dryland Restoration is kind of my private desert working page. And we have people from all over the planet um, who live in deserts or dry lands and are trying to do similar work. I think we have, uh, we've got over 1,500 people on that page and we get good conversations going. So, so if you're interested in, in dry land specific stuff and, and it's not just me. I mean, I had a, a very good back and forth with Alan Savory on that page, uh, last week. Um, so we, there, there are some very influential people on there who, who pop up and will converse, um, with other people who are just getting started on their garden. So it's, um, it's, it's a neat space. Yeah, that's, that's remarkable. Not many people have that kind of access to the big names and, and highly experienced people, especially with smaller, smaller projects. Yeah. Um, I, I find Alan, Alan and I butt heads a little bit on our approach, although I agree with holistic management um, in principle. Uh, I just find that 
I have a lot of people who follow Alan who will write me and say, all you need to do is put animals on your site and then you're going to do great. Um, that's not true for the context I'm in, but that's, and, and that's not what Alan advocates either. Alan definitely advocates having context-based decision-making, which is what holistic management is. But um, anyhow, that's neither here nor there. It's <laughs> Um, no, Ram I would love to hear more about it, but yeah, maybe we'll get to that on a follow-up episode yeah. or something. Ramis Kent also posts on there regularly, and he does really good work. Um, he's based out of the UK, but he consults a lot in East Africa, Central Asia, Southeast Asia as well. Um, Abe Connolly, who's, who does a lot of work in drylands in the Southwest United States, um, Neil Bertrando is on there every now and then. So, so people doing really fantastic work, and we um, and we talk on that dryland restoration page. Uh, and I, and the the people who tend to friend me on Facebook who I don't know, um, I tell them to go to that page because uh, most of the people who want to friend me on Facebook are interested in my work. And I'm trying to separate the, the personal and the professional there as much as I can. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, actually, I find Facebook and the permaculture community to be very vibrant. Yeah, I've uh, definitely found that as well. Yeah. The other place to go is um, sustainabledesignmasterclass.com. That's where you can sign up for our weekly updates for the webinar. Um, but we also have a Facebook page under Sustainable Design Masterclass where we um, post links to our webinars as well as follow-up things for the people we've had on. Excellent. Well, hey, Neil, thank you for being so generous with your time and for the insights that you shared with us today. We'll definitely have to do a follow-up sometime in the future. My pleasure, Oliver. Thanks for having me on. So there you have it. Now, before I end the session for this week, I've got one more weekly tip. This is another tip for people who are just getting started on a project, whether it be building a structure, planting a garden, or even just plastering an interior room of their house. While there are tons of books, videos, and other resources that will give you great advice on how to get started and what techniques to implement and more, if you're truly committed to working with nature and the environment around you, there will always be variables that are unique to your specific site and ecology and require a unique understanding in order to make the best choices for both your project and the health of your ecosystem. There are infinite variables when it comes to planning your garden space. Everything from your site's microclimates and soil composition to the rainfall and even relationships between the other plants and animals will all play a role in how your garden develops. All of those factors and more play into the design and construction of your home. You'll need to consider what actions will take place indoors and how to facilitate them, what local materials you have to work with that will be appropriate to your design, and much more. One good example comes from the other day when I was teaching a group of students how to make their own clay-based plaster. We went over different ratios of sand to clay, and since the clay subsoil can consist of any amount of other minerals, impurities, and even unique types of clay, how would you ever know how to mix just the right batch that will be both beautiful and durable enough to put in your house. Well, that's exactly why we make tests. We try out a bunch of different mixtures and ratios, record them, and mark them on our test patches, and then wait for them to dry to compare the results. I myself have done 10 to 20 or more of these test patches in order to find exactly the right mixture for the durability and aesthetic qualities that I was aiming for. And it works for all of the projects I mentioned before too. In order to be an effective collaborator with the environment, we're all going to have to become scientists to one degree or another. Maybe you're not one for keeping meticulous records and data on everything you do or test out, but that's alright. What you're aiming for is to become a better listener and observer while you find out how your actions affect the larger environment that you live in. For those of you who go the extra mile and record your results and findings, You'll be able to share your results to the larger community and help us all to create better relationships between our personal endeavors and the natural world as a whole. So test, 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 
and test some more because that's the best way that I have ever found of not only getting the best outcomes and reaching your goals successfully, but also in developing a better understanding of the world around you and how we fit into it. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from contracting, design, consulting, and education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback and emails to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email us directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Now if you enjoyed this or any of our previous episodes, the best way that you can support me right now is to leave a review on iTunes. Leaving a review is the best way to ensure that I reach as many people as possible with the invaluable information that is shared by the guests that I've interviewed. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again on next week's episode.